Sir, we've had a little problem. These two women are just arriving. They objected to giving up their weapons. Klingons do not surrender their weapons. Who are you? We are Lursa and Baton of the House of Duras. Hello and welcome to the Duras Sisters podcast. We are not Klingons, but we are sisters. And I'm Ashlyn. And I'm Rihanna. Today is the first episode of our brand new series coming at you on Valentine's Day. It's our Love and Affection series. Rihanna, what is this series all about? This series celebrates the many relationships in Star Trek, whether they be platonic, romantic, sexual. We have it all here on the Dura <laughs> Sisters podcast. <laughs> we wanted to celebrate just how much the crew love one another, how much we love Star Trek. This is sort of our love letter to the fans and to Star Trek saying that we are so happy you've been listening to our podcast for two series now and we are on to our third one and we thought the Valentine's Day would be a perfect time to do that. So here we are and I am so excited today to be talking about Star Trek, the original series through the theme of love and affection. We chose some really awesome episodes today and we are so happy that you are here joining us. Yes, we are. I want to talk a little bit about how we selected these episodes and which ones we chose to watch because there's, I mean, a lot of episodes that we could have watched. Like this is a kind of a vague, broad series that we're about to start. And the episodes that we chose are the ones that we feel either show a strong connection between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, the trio, or it's a particularly romantic episode with our men and a random woman that they hang out with (laughs) or fall in love, and the biggest ones of these. And so Rihanna and I kind of split up, and we each chose different episodes, and then we discussed it. And so what we landed on and what we're going to be talking about, I'll just go in order of release. So starting with This Side of Paradise in season one, and then Amok Time, Season two, Mirror, Mirror. And then in season three, we have The Paradise Syndrome, For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky, The Inpath, and All Our Yesterdays. And then we also wanted to talk about The Menagerie, part one and two, because, I mean, if that's not love and affection, I don't know what is. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, It was a really fun process, actually, choosing these episodes because it gave us both the opportunity to think about how we interpret love and affection and then come together and decide. And we are going to be doing this for all of our upcoming episodes in this series, or we'll choose separately and then we'll narrow it down together. Yeah. So thank you for joining us for this episode. It's kind of our experimental journey. The first episode of any new series is always interesting because that's when we can kind of find our pace and really get into the nitty gritty with these characters. So I'm so excited to talk about love this episode and not talk about the horrible trauma that we went through in the family series. (laughs) Yeah, we did not expect it to be as dark as it was, but classic Star Trek hitting you with all of the sad family episodes. (laughs) Before we get started, I just want to wish our listeners well. I know it's been a just insane 2021 and the start of the year has been maybe not what we all expected, but we are here to love you and say, please watch some beautiful Star Trek episodes with us and Come on the journey. Well said, Ashlyn. I thought that we could do a new segment for our Love and Affection series where each of us in each series give just a quick moment to talk about our favorite Star Trek 
ship. And I am not talking about the ship that flies around in space. I'm talking about your favorite Star Trek pairing uh, in the gonna, series. I was going to talk about the Defiant for like three years. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, sorry. No Enterprise A this time. Just to help our listeners, what is a ship? Can you define that for us? Yeah. It's a pairing or coupling of two different characters or more on the crew, and it can be canon, which means that it's actually in the universe, or it can be non-canon, which means that it's just something that you think two characters should get together. And I thought that would be a fun little thing for our Love and Affection series, because obviously this is what it's all about. (laughs) Yes, I love it. So this is for the original series we're, we're going to announce. Yeah, and this includes all of the animated series, in case you ship like the cat lady in A-Rex <laughs> or something, and also including the movies, in case you ship like Ilya and um, that other dude, Decker, <laughs> whatever his name is. Yeah, Decker, good job. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so Ashlyn, what is your favorite Star Trek ship in Star Trek The Original Series? This one is not hard for me because I've shipped them since I started watching Star Trek, Kirk and Spock. To me, they have a relationship and always have and always will, period. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, same. I actually found it really amazing that StarTrek.com is doing a Valentine's Day post. They've been doing a lot of posts on Instagram of different like couples in Star Trek. And Kirk and Spock is on that list. And oh. it's amazing. I just think oh. that it's nice that they also stan Kirk and Spock. They also really support the Spurk love that we all enjoy to see. It makes me so happy. And especially because I've shipped them for so long, like 10 years plus. And then when we joined the Twitter community as the Dura Sisters podcast, I found that because I, I kind of thought Rhiannon and I were alone in the universe and thinking this, but pretty much everyone we've ever encountered on Twitter and even at conventions are very convinced that Spurk is real. And yeah. so, I mean, you can really read into it that way. Um And I always do. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's one of the most queer-coded romances I've ever seen. And I've watched actual TV with actual queer characters who are together. And, like, Kirk and Spock is, like, they're more together than those couples. I mean, they're on the level with Hugh and Stamets in Discovery. I mean, they're a power couple. Absolutely. yeah. Yeah. For sure. Throughout the entire franchise, like even in the Kelvin timeline, they're still just in love. So you love to see it. It also made me happy to watch For the Love of Spock, the documentary about Leonard Nimoy and his portrayal of Spock. And George Takei comes on, which I think they wanted someone gay to talk about this subject. But George Takei comes and he says, oh, yeah, it's definitely there. You can read into it. And it's very prominent. Like, they are portrayed as a gay couple. Yeah, they took a whole segment to talk about, like, fan art and fan fiction and how, like, the fandom itself really sort of blew up with that and it gave people a space to feel like they were on the lgbtq plus spectrum it feels like you have a space to sort of enjoy this show through your own lens and that's what i've always appreciated about it even before i knew that i was a lesbian i loved kirk and spock and i didn't really know why and now i know why even more and it's just <laughs> great <laughs> there's also something historic about 
Kirk and Spock because there was not or maybe no fan fiction. Uh, at least it wasn't a strong community before the original series. And that was really how it got started. They're kind of the grandfathers of fan fiction. Yeah, I'd love to yeah. see some good fandom creativity out here. Also, you know, if you're feeling inclined, please tweet us or message us whatever on the Dura Sisters podcast and let us know what your favorite original series ship is. I do want to say that a runner-up for me in the original series is Chekhov and Sulu. Oh my god. They are a really cute Helms couple. I know. I love to see it. So (laughs) I love to see it. I love there's a moment in Amok Time where they're just having this conversation on the helm because Sulu's like, how do you figure it, Chekhov? We are headed to Vulcan and then we're not headed to Vulcan and then we're headed to Vulcan. And Chekhov goes, I think I might get space sick. (laughs) And like, this is just a constant interaction that they have. They're just chilling. There's another scene where Chekhov is being hella dramatic. He's like, I'll live, but I won't be happy about it. <laughs> or something. Sulu just looks over at him. He's like, okay, hun, like, whatever. I'm like, it's just, I love their dynamic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the scene also in the movie, The Final Frontier, where they're in the woods together. It's just hilarious. They I mean, really they're an amazing dynamic. They're camping together on shore leave. I mean, you know, they chose nobody <laughs> but each other. Like, that yeah. is so cute. Absolutely. <laughs> well, let's get started. I'm so, so pumped to talk about love and affection in the original series. And let's start out with someone who is a little more gruff than love. And that is the amazing CMO, the one, the only, Dr. Leonard Horatio McCoy. <laughs> Okay, pull out the middle name, Ashlyn. That's when you know Ashlyn is the biggest Dr. McCoy fan. (laughs) I'm not going to lie that watching these episodes have really brought out my McCoy love again, because depending on what series I'm watching, it goes in and out. But as soon as I'm back watching even more than one original series episode, I just start passing out because I love McCoy so much. (laughs) Real quick, does that love of McCoy extend to Carl Urban's portrayal in the Kelvin timeline? Yes, Yes, and yes, it does. Nice. (laughs) Carl Urban, I think, is, besides Chris Pine, I think he's one of the few actors that completely has the essence of DeForest Kelly. And you know he did his research. He's just a great actor. And everything that he's in, he just is a chameleon. And you think that he was born on the set of Star Trek 2009. And then you watch Lord of the Rings and you're like, oh, yeah, he's the horse lord. Yeah, I, (laughs) you know, I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, so true. Thank you for saying that. (laughs) So for this episode, we watched For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky for McCoy's segment because this is a fascinating episode that I've always found to be really a deep dive into McCoy's psyche and character that we don't really get elsewhere in the series. We don't get a ton of McCoy love. I mean, there's not a lot that focuses centrally on McCoy except this episode. And, you know, there's moments like in City on the Edge of Forever where he gets a good chunk of time, but it's mostly devoted to Kirk and Spock all the time or a subplot with Scotty, you know, being Jack the Ripper or whatever. But... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, man, season three really gets hard to... (laughs) come up with plots well yeah i mean even the season three episodes we were watching i was like whoa i forgot that season three is um sometimes can be a little interesting on its last leg yeah yeah i also just have to note that this is the longest title in star trek history for the world is hollow and i have touched the sky even just trying to write it down with only the initials it takes up like an entire line (laughs) even longer than like looking for parmok in all the wrong places oh yeah yeah 
Like there are some that are, or like even let this be your last battlefield. There's some long titles, but <laughs> nothing compares. So I like what you were saying about McCoy. It's true. He's not featured in a lot of these and especially not in a romantic way. And I think it's because of his age. Kirk and Spock are supposed to be, well, Spock is older than we, we think he is, but Kirk and Spock are the stars. They're the young, hip guys running around, banging all the ladies and each other. And <laughs> McCoy is portrayed as this older guy. And I think it's cool because I think in a lot of dramas, we don't get this. We don't get older people having a chance at finding love. And as we talked about in our family series, we know McCoy has an ex-wife and a daughter that he's estranged from. And so I get the sense that if a woman comes along, he's not going to shy away. He's broken a little bit from that relationship, but he's open to a new future with someone else. Obviously, he's devoted to his life on the Enterprise. And so that's what makes this episode so interesting is for the first time in his life, he's willing to consider another path for him because he finds out that he is going to die and he has just a year to live. This is a really sad way to start off the episode because the way that McCoy tells this information to Kirk is he says, oh, Jim, come to my quarters and I have something to discuss with you. I just did the physicals for the year or for everybody on the, sh on the ship and one person has a terminal disease and it's the ship's chief medical officer. And then, you know, that's the cliffhanger before the intro starts. And oh, I mean, it just hits you like a ton of bricks. Like what? McCoy, what do you mean? So they end up finding a ship, it looks like an asteroid, but once they land on it, it's designed to be a planet and then they figure out that it's a ship and it's a generation ship that has been traveling to its new destination for a long time and it's going to keep going for another year and McCoy finds love on this planet, starship, asteroid, and he does decide to stay there. So that's just kind of like a brief plot summary. Rihanna, I'm wondering what would you do in this situation? And do you agree with McCoy's choice to want to stay on the ship? Well, I can't guilt him for it. I mean, this is a really horrible situation. It makes it even more sad because in our family series, we talked about how McCoy's father also died of an incurable disease that um, there was a cure like two weeks later. And so I think he's going through a lot of trauma. But I just think this is a very hard thing to discover, obviously, that like you have a terminal illness, especially someone who's a doctor who, who understands everything about psychoclysema or whatever it's called. Mm -hmm. And I think that when he meets Natira and she is so open and beautiful and loving and just affectionate towards him, I would definitely be very interested. But I was also surprised because if I were in his shoes, I would definitely want to stay with my friends as long as possible. And I would want to be near Kirk and Spock and the ship. And I would want to be where I call home for my last days of my life. But also, I think McCoy is very proud. Spock says this many times in the episodes mm -hmm. we watch that McCoy is the worst patient on the Enterprise. And so I think that that's really difficult for him to show weakness. And so he wants to sort of hide away and be with a woman who is kind of a stranger. You know, Natira, he just met. But he's like, you know, I can fall in love with this woman and make a life because she hasn't been near me for all these years, it's okay if I show vulnerability in front of her because she's basically a stranger. And I think it's more safe for him in that circumstance. I just found the comparisons really interesting because we also, in our watch of this series in preparation, we watched All Our Yesterdays, where McCoy is 
adamant about getting back to the ship because they're trapped on this world. But that's because Spock was the one with the love interest in this episode. So I think that when someone is showing, you know, an outward attraction, like you said, someone who doesn't often get that affection towards him, I'm happy for him that he's making this decision that he thinks will be best for him. But in all honesty, I think what would be best for him would be to stay with his ship as long as possible around people who really love him and really know him. What do you think, Ash? I love what you said about McCoy being very proud because that's exactly what I was thinking. I'm with you, Rihanna. I think I would want to stay on the ship for at least six months and then maybe go back on Earth and like hang out with my like weird, I don't know, sister that I don't talk about. I don't know. Um, Well, I do talk about my weird sister but anyway (laughs) there's a couple lines that just like break me in this episode too because well first of all this woman Natira is instantly into McCoy it's like attraction or love at first sight she's very direct with him and she approaches him right away and she's like hey like let's get together you're hot you know (laughs) and she asks him do you live a lonely life and he says yes very lonely And that really made me sad because it honestly kind of hurt my feelings because how can McCoy be doing everything he does in the Enterprise and still feel lonely? It makes me sad. Like, even though he has this shield that he puts up all the time where he's teasing Spock and he's very gruff with everybody and cranky and grumpy, he's really just such a soft-hearted person. And I think he is craving someone to love, but he didn't realize it until he found out that his time was coming to an end. Another line that I thought was a really interesting moment was Kirk is telling McCoy, if you stay on this ship, it's heading right in the path of a world with millions of people on it. And it's on a collision course. And McCoy says, I'm on kind of a collision course myself. Oh, Yes, that line is so sad. Dang, that crushed me a little. I noticed that he doesn't say goodbye to anybody else except Kirk and Spock. He doesn't go on the ship and say goodbye to Scotty or Chekhov or Sulu. Or Chapel even? Are you kidding me? Yeah, exactly. And at the beginning of this episode, there's a great moment between him and Chapel where she's disobeying orders because she cares about McCoy, you know, and and he's like, don't treat me differently. Doesn't matter. So I think you can really see how clearly he does not want to be examined or anything. I think this is common, you know, what McCoy is feeling. I I remember when our own grandfather passed away, he also didn't want to be seen in his last days looking the way that he did because it was too vulnerable for him to face. And I think McCoy has that same feeling. I think it's a common feeling. You want to be remembered in your prime. McCoy wants to be remembered banging all the ladies on shore leave, you know, with a tiger running by. So he doesn't want to be remembered on the Enterprise as a failing old man. And so I think what he finds in Natira is really interesting. And just to shift to talk about her a little bit too, one of my favorite lines that she says is, may I give you what you want and make the time you have beautiful. And I love that when McCoy tells her, I'm sick, you know, you don't want to love me because I'm just going to leave you. She's okay with that. And she has this beautiful response. And I think it's so special that McCoy was able to find someone at this random time in his life because, you know, episode timing, who accepts him in this way. And I really think she's a cool love interest. And that's one of the reasons I really wanted to watch this episode. She kind of comes off as sort of like a bimbo, but she's the head of her species. She's the leader of the whole ship besides the computer. Landru? <laughs> no, no. Not not, Landru this, not, this isn't Landru. This is like the, uh, they call him like the, the one, I don't know, something 
classic TOS. <laughs> yeah, it's like the enforcer. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I agree. She is kind of the perfect woman for this moment for McCoy, the perfect person to be with him while he thinks he's dying. I want to briefly talk about the scene in this episode where Spock finds out that McCoy is dying because McCoy does not tell Spock. He flat out refuses to tell him. I think Chapel and Kirk are the only ones who know. And I think this is purposeful because I think that he, again, it's part of his pride and McCoy and Spock have such an interesting dynamic where it's a lot of banter. I think it starts out a little more hostile and then becomes more playful and loving as their relationship grows. But I think that he's still worried to look vulnerable, especially in front of Spock. Spock to him is sort of this green-blooded hobgoblin, infallible Vulcan figure. And so he doesn't want to be seen as weak around him. But the way that he finds out is they got zapped by the computer and McCoy takes a little while to like recover and wake up and Spock's like, what's going on? Why is he still passed out and everything? And Kirk finally tells him. And I think that's a good move for Kirk's point because Spock would be in his own way very frustrated. I imagine if McCoy just left and Spock had no idea really what was the full meaning behind it. He has this bond with McCoy. And so when he finds out that McCoy is dying, he just holds his arm and just like stares at him. And McCoy wakes up. Jim just goes, he knows. And the way Spock is looking at him, I think it's Spock's way of showing, we are here for you. I sympathize. And I love that scene because it does show that even though McCoy may be afraid to be vulnerable in front of his friends, they are still there for him. And I found the scene where he says goodbye to them, where we think he's just going to be like leaving forever to be super cold. I think that it's the only way they could part, or at least McCoy could part from them. And Kirk looks dejected. Spock looks mad. Like he looks, I mean, as mad as Spock can look. And like, I know Spock well enough to know like his different facial expressions. And like, he is not happy that McCoy has made this decision. And neither is Kirk. I mean, they, to a degree, they understand his choice, but... They can't really because it's one of their best friends leaving them forever, as they think, you know, and luckily this, of course, has a beautiful wrap up where the data that they got kind of like the sphere data reminding me of discovery, but they got this data that's like thousands of years old that was able to find a cure for McCoy's disease. And because the people on this hollow world are kind of being controlled by the computer and they have to be obedient and everything. And so but McCoy is fully ready to just be obedient to this controller because this is his life now. He's dying. He might as well hang out with a beautiful girl and be controlled by a computer. Like he's sort of just like, ah. Yeah, I wasn't sure if his willingness to be obedient and have the computer chip put in his head was because he was so into this woman already and he was like, sure, like I'm going to just fully commit to you. Let's full send it. I only got a year left. Let's do it. But I also wonder if it was his desperation to get away from the Enterprise as fast as possible and to just fit seamlessly into this new society because he wanted a clean slate. He wanted to maybe be in a place where he could be vulnerable and not have to show it in front of these people he dearly, dearly cares about because it's a lot easier to show your emotions in some ways to people you don't know. If McCoy had stayed with him, this society of people could get to know him in a totally different way. And Natira says at the beginning of this episode that they speak truth only. 
it's not quite as like savage as absolute candor, it seems like, but <laughs> Natira really values honesty and truth. And that's why she's so direct with McCoy during this whole episode. And that's honestly what saves them at the end is her need for the computer to be honest with her. And that's when she realizes that things aren't going wrong. You talked about the coldness. You talked about the coldness about how these three characters interact when McCoy is saying goodbye. And I also thought this whole episode, actually, there was a very cold element to Kirk. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he orders mccoy's replacement right away mccoy says i'm i'm sick and kirk doesn't even ask him can you continue your duties or anything he just immediately orders a replacement and they're going to meet him up at the next starbase to get their new cmo that's that's cold man that's kind of i mean if this was next generation we'd have like a whole goodbye episode <laughs> for mccoy up, like, a sad party <laughs> yeah <laughs> i would play the trombone sadly like <laughs> Data would write a poem. Yeah. yeah totally. But McCoy wants none of that. And I think neither does Kirk because he can't handle it. Kirk was Bones' friend since the Academy days, if we believe the continuity of the yeah. Kelvin universe. Even if not, we know that they met at some point in Starfleet or they just got super, super close at the beginning of the Enterprise's run. But I don't think Kirk can really face his life without McCoy. And so that's why there's this coldness throughout the episode. But what I love about the original series is that there's always an unspoken agreement between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. That's what makes this trio so powerful is you know without even questioning it that whoever's in trouble, the other ones will come to them and they will all sacrifice themselves for them. And so I think McCoy had to make this choice to leave because otherwise, who knows what crazy thing Kirk and Spock might have done to try to save him. You know, I mean, they've done crazier stuff for smaller stakes. Absolutely. I think that that sacrifice point is really important because I'm thinking about even episodes we didn't choose, but moments in other episodes or movies where, I mean, of course, Spock makes the ultimate sacrifice in Wrath of Khan, but McCoy also makes a sacrifice there because he takes Spock's Katra. He still is willing to carry it and also willing to possibly die to get it back into Spock and search for Spock. And there's so many episodes where Kirk will jump in front of a phaser for Spock or McCoy or Spock will jump in front of some plants that are about to like stab you (laughs) for Kirk, you know? And so you constantly see these self-sacrificing trio. And I just love that they were just like, okay, we found the cure. Come on aboard. And Natira, she realizes oh, you can't stay with us now. This is not where you truly belong. It's only you thought you needed to belong somewhere else to get over the pain of having to leave your crewmates and everything. And I like that she is sort of able to let him go in this moment. I think that that's got to be hard because we were fortunate enough to watch this episode together in person, Ashlyn and I were. And Ooh. I just turned to her and was like, Ashlyn, that's totally you. Like the moment <laughs> that Natira set her eyes on McCoy, she was like batting her eyelashes and like, ooh la la. And I'm like, that's totally Ashlyn. Like she loves McCoy. <laughs> it really is. If this was the situation, I would be like, oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, you would take him for how many ever months he had left. Like, <laughs> yeah, that would be that. That's what I would say to McCoy: is may I give you what you want and make the rest of your time beautiful? That'd be my quote. <laughs> yeah. um, what I like about Natira's choice at the end too is she chooses duty over love, and that's something we see Kirk do all the time and so many starfleet officers that's what you have to do that's the eternal battle is how do you balance relationships and love with work and exploring space and yeah i love that she chooses her people 
and leading them because now the computer is broken and they, you know, they had to update the software so it wasn't controlling the people <laughs> anymore. And they had to add a course correction so they weren't going to crash into this planet and kill millions of people. So once this is all resolved, she kind of comes back to reality herself and says, okay, I understand you belong with them. I have a ship to run. So honestly, it's probably better she doesn't have distractions. Yeah. You know? And I found this so admirable that it was a woman who decided this because we usually see a reversal where it's the man, either one of the, one of our three male main characters making that quote unquote, or not, it's not a quote unquote, it's a real sacrifice. They're making this sacrifice to leave the woman behind. I was really happy to see a woman doing the same. It's just important because as much as I love the original series, feminism is not strong point. And so yeah, absolutely. it is really nice to see her making that choice over a man I was like wow snaps for you (laughs) I totally agree I totally agree and I I think they would have had a lovely life together and that's again one of the reasons why I love this episode is because of how genuine their chemistry seems to be McCoy is very gentle with her and she to him and it's just a very wholesome relationship they have going yeah absolutely Now we're going to kind of do a flip-flop if you're ready to flip-flop. I'm ready to flip-flop. Let's do it. Okay. So of course, we're talking about love and affection, which means that we simply cannot skip over Kirk's women of the week. We could not talk about all of them (laughs) because there are many. There are many. (laughs) So many. Like, I mean, not every single episode, but I'd say like either every other episode or like every three episodes, Kirk has a woman that he falls in love with in one episode or at least has sex with in one episode. I don't know if he falls in love every time, but we significantly chose the ones that either the woman was really in love with Kirk or Kirk seemed to genuinely fall for this person. And one episode in particular I want to discuss is called The Paradise Syndrome, which I haven't seen since like the first time we watched it. And I remember just being like, wow, like Native American people, that's cool. Didn't look much further than that. I was like, wow, it's a kind of a tragic ending. Like Kirk is very cute in this episode. And that's something I really want to note about Paradise Syndrome. I know that it gets a lot of controversy. It's very much cultural appropriation. Like there's a lot of things that like if we were talking about our ethics podcast, (laughs) we would probably discuss the fact that this episode is not super great for representation because a Native American woman is devoting her whole life to a white man. It's not amazing. They dress Kirk up in the garb. Yeah, super cultural appropriation. A lot of things that aren't super great. Like I think at one point McCoy says like American Indians and like, of course, that's not the correct term. So I understand that this episode has a lot of controversy for that matter. And I do want to take that into account and like know that I'm praising it for reasons that are not those things. Those things are dicey and I'm not a fan of the appropriation aspect of it. Thank you for saying that, Rihanna. I wanted to make that note too on the podcast. I also just note, you know, for anyone in the future writing Star Trek episodes, like this is such an easy episode to do without making them Native Americans, you know. It's Star Trek. Like choose an alien race (laughs) that are peaceful and prosperous on a planet and then you have the exact same episode, you know. There's no reason to do this. I mean, that was a big thing in the 60s and earlier. But anyway, yeah. So just with these disclaimers, I'm happy to proceed. (laughs) Totally, yeah. And one more thing I'll say is that like, but it's also important to have representation, but when it's done through damaging stereotypes it's not good (laughs) so i think if they were to have the another native american culture representation and voyager like there are ways to do it that star trek has done that's better than this so yeah um but one thing i really enjoyed about this episode first of all i've always loved miramani's character i think that she is 
fantastic. I think she's such a good actor. I just love her as a person. Is She's so cool. And also, I love Kirk in this episode, which I don't say often because I think Kirk is a bit of a womanizer. You know, I mean, he was portrayed as this ladies man, like getting the girl and just banging her and then leaving. And I'm like, not a huge fan of that. And of course, there's so many things I love about Jim Kirk, but those are not one of them. And this one I think is so good because of the fact that he loses his memory in this episode. And he has no idea who he is. He doesn't know what time period he's in. Like he has no clue what's going on. He and doesn't I- even know his name. <laughs> he's like, I'm Kurt. And they're like, and he's like, sure. <laughs> he's gonna say Kern. And I was like, is this return to Kern part three? <laughs> part four. <laughs> because he lost his memory it's actually way more wholesome because I think he truly falls in love with Miramani very easily because who wouldn't? She's amazing. I love her. I would fall in love with her instantly. And I think that it shows a softer side of Kirk when he loves for not an ulterior motive. Sure, maybe he was still thinking with his downstairs parts, but like, I mean, he was also thinking with his heart. And the scenes where they're just running around the forest together, laughing and playing, and like when she tells him that she's pregnant, it is just some of the most wholesome content in all of original series. And I did not expect that with Kirk's random woman of the week, you know, like you don't really expect that. And so that's something I want to applaud the writers for is the fact that they were able to make a new enough plot that felt dynamic, that felt like we're getting a new side of Kirk and we're seeing him not as this burdened starship captain who has hundreds of lives under his command. I mean, and this is something that I find really interesting in this episode is Kirk is enamored with this planet. He is like, this is so beautiful. It's exactly like Earth. Like it's just picturesque. And he is like, let's stay longer. Like let's hang out. And McCoy is like, you've got Tahiti syndrome, Jim, (laughs) which I've never heard of before, but I guess it's a thing that happens. I haven't heard of it either, but I think you kind of understand what it means. And McCoy even explains it. You know, he's like, it's what happens to people who work really hard and live under high pressure situations all the time because of their job. And McCoy says it's a symptom for Starfleet captains. Um, (laughs) Every once in a while, they just want to get away and not think about the life and death decisions that they're making every day, which I'm like, okay, McCoy, call it Tahiti syndrome or call it normal. (laughs) Like, let's, let's normalize vacations. (laughs) yeah normalize those breaks come on yeah not every shore leave has to have a tiger that sulu imagined running around so (laughs) yeah exactly so i found this to be really interesting because we don't see kirk often pining for something that isn't the enterprise because kirk loves the enterprise and he will do anything for her but i mean this also reminded me of something we talked about with pike in man trap in our pilot series and also something we discussed is that like kelvin kirk had a lot more of these feelings and beyond he was like oh man I need to get out of this captaincy like it's crushing him and I think we can see a bit of a glimpse of that here and I kind of enjoy like as much as I don't love that he lost his memory and like had this whole life with his wife just to have her die at the end it was so horrible so tragic I love that he had this time with her and I think that he probably thinks about her often and thinks about the life they had together for original series and for the timeline like usually it's one day or like a week at most that they spend with these women but this was a good period of time I think it was around a month or so and so for TOS that is long that is a long time for Kirk to be no it was 60 days yeah it was two months 
Wow. Yeah. So I think that that's really cool because we get to see Kirk, what he would be like past the phase of just wanting to have sex with someone. You know, we see him in this phase of falling in love and really falling for her. Yeah. So I I found that aspect of this episode to be really cool and very wholesome to see Kirk just completely enamored and completely lifted from the burdens. I thought that Shatner's acting in this episode was well done because he just seemed so much lighter and so much like just chill, you know, (laughs) like he just had no problems except the fact that he thought he was a god and had strange dreams about his crew. You really summarized it for me. Yeah, I feel very similarly. I also, you know, just thinking about Beyond and the Kelvin timeline, I know that movie specifically was written by, you know, um, I almost said James Doohan, well, um, <laughs> was helped to be written by Simon Pegg, who plays Scotty, and a couple of other diehard Star Trek fans. And so you can really see where they were pulling from. They were pulling directly from this type of episode where Kirk is saying, ah, oh, it would just be so nice for me to have a break. And can you imagine how simple it would be living here? And I think we all get caught in that trap where we are going through something extremely stressful, you know, maybe like a pandemic. Mm-hmm. And um, we want to go to Hawaii every day. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's totally a normal thing. And I think it's really interesting that they choose to have this episode because Kirk is the one we think of when we think of like classic iconic Starfleet is James T. Kirk. We don't think about him running around on a planet with his wife, you know, no. this is the only time that Kirk gets married ever. Kirk has never been married before or after, to my knowledge. He might have like gotten drunk at Risa and like married a random woman that I don't know about. <laughs> but possible. as far as I know, this is his only marriage. It's a good point, Ashlyn. Ever. Yeah. And I think it's it's because his memory is erased. Poor Kirk. I mean, he's called to be this amazing, fantastic person and he only has time for a fling. Well, I should say he only makes time for a fling. You know, he could figure out something if he really, really, truly loves someone. But his first love is the Enterprise and his crew and it will always be that way. And so when he actually has the time to pause and just be, I mean, what do they do on this planet? They play tag, which we see. They all hang out and they live together as a community. They're probably farming or some type of way that they're growing plants. And and that's it, you know? They're yeah. just surviving and they're living day to day. And even when Kirk was living on Earth in Iowa, I don't think he ever had this type of life. And so it's really pure to see and I really love it. Mira Moni herself is one of my favorite love interests. I actually named my car Mira because of Mira Moni. And yeah. just, yeah, because I love her. I think she's so cool. I don't know if I agree with you that William Shatner's acting is great in this one because <laughs> the parts that are kind of haunting me are every time that Kirk is like standing on top of the pillar with his arms okay, open, that's you know, <laughs> and, and he has this like mental, he's like talking to himself in his brain and he's like, every day I grow more happier. You know, like they really tried to play with a voiceover and it really didn't work. Oh, it didn't work. It didn't work. I think they were trying to do a captain's log, but like, oh, it doesn't work. Because he doesn't know what a captain's log is. (laughs) I just, those scenes are maybe like rock bottom cheese for me. This is cheese (laughs) that has been aged for 60 years. (laughs) But I think that cheese grows with age and gets better with age. So I really enjoyed it. Okay. Okay. I want to switch briefly to the B plot of this, which involves Spock and McCoy trying desperately to get this asteroid out of the way. Because this is the whole reason that they're at this planet. The asteroid is going to crash into the planet. It's amazing how many episodes that this includes. But 
on Spock's side, he's in command and he's finding out. I mean, they're they're really losing time. This asteroid's coming super fast. Spock cannot figure out a way to destroy it. And he's freaking out. And I've never seen Spock so serious than in this episode because he first of all, makes the decision to leave Kirk after Kirk gets lost and stumbles into the the stone temple. Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. He makes that choice to leave Kirk on the planet. And then when he can't destroy the asteroid, they travel because they don't have warp engines because plot. And poor Scotty, he's freaking out in the engineering. He's like, what are you doing to my babies? (laughs) He's talking to them. He's like, hold on, babies. (laughs) They're going at impulse back to the planet and it takes two months. And poor Spock, McCoy is constantly checking up on him because Spock isn't eating. He's not sleeping. And he has a line where he says Vulcans can go for several days without eating when under extreme stress. And I'm like, okay, it's good that you can go that long, but you shouldn't, you know? Yeah, I'm kind of half human. So like he doesn't have as much of the discipline as Vulcans have. Vulcans can actually go like weeks without sleeping, but it just needs to be like, you need to be meditating at least. And I'm sure Spock isn't meditating. I'm positive. No. He's only thinking about the obelisk and trying to decipher it. And McCoy even tells him, like, go to sleep, Spock. And Spock just lays on his bed. And then as soon as McCoy's gone, he gets back up and starts working. (laughs) (laughs) There's even the scene where McCoy comes in and he's like, damn it, Spock, I told you to sleep. Because Spock's, like, sitting there with his little instrument. And Spock's like, well, I am relaxing. But he's really (laughs) figuring out that it's, like, the obelisk opens to musical notes. Like, he's not relaxing. He's not even sitting there playing music for fun. He's playing it for work. (laughs) Yeah. this This is how hard Spock will go in order to make sure his crew are safe. And I think this is exactly the reason he did not ever want to be captain is because he knows that he will never stop working and he will die within five years of just exhaustion. (laughs) See, Spock is the original Jon Snow. Like, I don't want it. (laughs) Yeah, He's like, my watch has ended. I need to get out of here. (laughs) I don't want it. Obviously, anyone would be stressed. You know, you think about Riker in this situation or anybody else. This is something tough to deal with. And there's extreme pressure because the planet is at stake and your captain and your boyfriend, (laughs) you know? And so I think that's just my reading of it. That's why Spock is so extremely overworking himself is because his best friend will die if he does not figure out this problem. I thought it was really, really awesome to have this juxtaposition because we will go back and forth in this episode from scenes of Kirk literally running around as we've we've talked about. Kirk is feeling such joy that he's never felt. He even says to Miramoni, or maybe it was in his head. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I can't remember. He says, I'm so happy and peaceful. I don't think I've ever felt this way before. And oh man poor kirk like this life that he's living he can't remember feeling happy and peaceful (laughs) like right yikes but anyway so we we go from these beautifully romantic scenes with kirk and then we flip to spock just overworking himself and going nuts trying to figure out this problem and i don't know there's just something really nice about the way that they show these scenes back and forth i thought it was intentional just to show that sure while Kirk is being free and having a great time, there are consequences. And it shows you that this is not something that's going to last because their time is coming to an end one way or another. Either the asteroid is going to come and destroy the planet or Kirk 
is going to be saved by Spock and McCoy and their time will end. And so I think it's something that makes me as a watcher value this episode even more because I know that this can't happen. You know, we're not going to have the rest of season three be Kirk married to Miramoni with their baby on the planet. You know, it can't be that way. <laughs> yeah. As nice as that would be, you know, as much as I like love a mirror romantic episode um, <laughs> where, you know, but that's not the show. And that's not Kirk. That's not really who he is. He's having dreams all the time, every night about Spock and McCoy, even though he doesn't know them. This episode really breaks the mold for me. And I really appreciate it because of its place in the series. Thank you for saying that. I didn't even think about that juxtaposition. That's such a good point. And something else that I found really fascinating about this episode, about the end, is when Spock and McCoy beam down to the planet right when Kirk and Miramani are being stoned to death. Like it's awful. And so then talk about juxtaposition again, like Spock and McCoy are triumphant that they have finally figured out how to save Kirk, how to save the planet. Like, or they're at least certain that Spock knows the symbols are now tied to musical notes. And so I think that they're finally like, Oh, thank God. Like we can save our captain. We can save our friend and this planet. It's going to be great. (laughs) And then they come down and see Kirk and this woman on death's door because they're getting stoned by their own community just simply because Kirk is not a god and they all figured it out. Like they should have figured it out a long time ago. And it's clear that Kirk is just like an amnesiac. <laughs> like there's not yeah. a lot of patients besides that he can PR <laughs> and like make candles <laughs> or whatever. But yeah, so I think that that also then switches the tone again because I think that frankly, like Spock, of course, is probably feeling feels bad for Kirk that Miramoni's like not gonna make it and that she's not doing well. I was a little surprised how little they cared about Miramoni. I get that they don't know her. She to them is just some random woman who just got stoned. But like even if a woman was getting stoned, I think I would care a little bit about what happens. I understand they're under a time crunch that this asteroid is going to destroy it if they don't open the obelisk and use the deflector ray to destroy it. But still, she's laying there like half dead right next to Kirk. Kirk's clearly distraught trying to get back to her. And even when he mind melts with Spock, it's it's just, it's a lot. There's a lot going on. And I was kind of surprised, but I also understand McCoy and Spock's priorities are very different than Kirk's. I mean, Kirk is literally just like, I need to get to my wife and my unborn child. That's my only priority right now. And so I loved that scene where he melts with Spock because even Spock is sort of overwhelmed by the love that Kirk has for her. And he's like, whoa, like Kirk really went through this experience while we were gone. And um, I like to I like to think that whatever Spock mind melds with people, like he does understand them better and he does glean more of their emotions and understanding of them. I just think that that's important for the connection that he makes with his crew and they can show sort of their love and affection through the mind melds with Spock. But right now, Kirk's only thinking about Miramani. Like he's not really focusing on anything else. And so it's sort of a cruel awakening when Spock finally regains Kirk's memories and Kirk's is like I'm back and you can just see the shift in him where like all of those burdens go back on his shoulders but he's like ready for them he's like okay I'm Kirk again I'm not Kira I I just find it really amazing that that love remains for Miramani tell her last breath it's horribly sad but he says and I will love you always and you know he will like that place in his heart will always hold her like you said his only wife the only one he ever married and she says each kiss is as the first I just I think it's 
sad and also probably necessary that he lied to her and said she was going to be fine and the baby was going to be fine because how can you tell somebody like nope sorry you're dying like you won't make it out of this scene essentially so yeah it's just that was a tough tough ending and gotta be hard for Kirk but I'm really glad he experienced it even though it's heartbreaking yeah I really think that he truly loved her and I think when he gets his memories back you said it already I mean you see him come back to be Kirk but he does not really care about saving the planet. He only cares about saving Miramoni. And I think that is just something rare that we just don't get to see with Kirk. And so even though it had this horrible ending, what a beautiful memory for him and a beautiful time for him to just be free and be who he naturally is for a little bit, you know? Yeah. And then he gets to come back and be who he is expected to be totally. which is this iconic starship captain oh yeah i i didn't like how they just did not care about her either i thought that was really interesting and something that definitely is a problem with the original series is the endings are pretty fast you know they happen within two minutes and everything's resolved and da, 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 you know like <laughs> yeah. drop that mic get out of there yeah. So I, I think that's why it's just like a poorly written ending. Yeah, but I Mark Alamo or whatever. And you're like, well, okay, yeah. bye. <laughs> yeah, I, I just really wanted to yeah. see Kirk or McCoy at all do anything to try to save her because they make this whole effort for us to start liking Miramoni throughout this episode. And just to see how much they don't care, I think is a really interesting perspective. And maybe that's something that the inhabitants of every planet that they're on feel when Kirk and Spock and McCoy leave, you know, there's this kind of indifference toward the the people there. But it's because they have to save the planet. So, you yeah, know, it's sort of the hazards a- of being um, in Starfleet is that, yes, you get to explore strange new worlds and seek out new life and new civilizations, but like you don't get to stay on those worlds and you don't get to make real connections. Yeah, sometimes they're making peace treaties or negotiations or saving a planet, but it's not about creating those lasting bonds. I mean, yes, through diplomacy, but not through romantic love, you know? I mean, it's just not feasible. And I think that that's why it's so interesting that we get an episode where Kirk truly seems to fall in love. That's just not common. There's a big episode we are not discussing in this uh, Love and Affection series, which is Sitting on the Edge of Forever, because we wanted to save that for a time travel episode because I think the themes of time travel are stronger than the themes of love, even though, how do I say that? Edith Keeler. Um, You know, Edith Keeler is an iconic person as well. But yeah, I think besides Miramoni and Edith Keeler and I mean, even Carol Marcus, yeah. he has his strongest connection with these two women who do not get to survive, yeah. which is so sad. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I want to say before we move on, and I mean, it's not quite love and affection related, but I was thinking because the you know they're talking at the end of this episode, why are these Native Americans here on this planet when they're exactly like Earth, like they're Navajo tribes, you know, and um, I think Squaw and Delaware, maybe another one that yeah. uh, Spock was rattling off, but... Mm-hmm. <laughs> They say that it was an alien species called the preservers who took civilizations that were that were not as advanced and put them on other planets so they could thrive and prosper and find peace basically without persecution. And this is just so remarkably similar to the Voyager episode where 
Chakotay finds his sister tribe or just like an, an ancient version of his tribe in the Delta Quadrant. And so I'm pretty sure that it's canon that the preservers are the same exact species that Chakotay encounters in Voyager. I'm How is that a coincidence? And McCoy even says, he's like, that's why there's all these human races outside of the galaxy, you know? <laughs> right? I found this amazing and something that like, oh, Star Trek coming in clutch again, helping us to fill in these gaps of and these questions we have of like, the real reason is probably because they didn't want to do a bunch of makeup or set design. And so they're like, let's just make them humans and give them some Native American clothing and be done with it. But I think it's a really genius way of fitting it into the plot where it makes sense. And then they can do that in further episodes where they don't have to spend money on makeup or design. And so, yeah, it's really genius. I And I love that that could definitely be canon for the rest of the Star Trek universe. That's so cool. So great. Love the writers sometimes. Sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) So another one of Kirk's love interests we wanted to discuss is the complete polar opposite of Miramani in pretty much every way is Marlana. I think her name is pronounced in Mm -hmm. episode Mirror Mirror. And we wanted to discuss this episode mainly because she is really awesome, but also because it's sort of the reverse where she's very much in love with Kirk and Kirk has come from a prime or from a, not a prime, I guess, cause it depends. I guess the mirror universe people feel like their universe is prime, <laughs> but he goes, he's coming from an alternate reality into the mirror reality, discovering that this woman is, has been with him for quite a while. There are, you know, as we've talked about and we'll always talk about Kirk just bangs everyone And there's a couple of women that really stand out among the rest. And for me, one of the most important women that he encounters is Marlena. I think the reason why I'm so drawn to her and maybe why Mira Kirk is too, is because she's extremely ambitious. And I don't think we've seen a lot of women at this point in the original series. She wants to climb the ladder, I think, by sleeping with everybody is what it sounds like. And so what she has with Kirk is a serious romance she's definitely in love with him but i think she also sees kirk as a way to keep advancing her career i we know that she she works in the chem lab so she's a chemist and she is constantly pumping kirk up to get promoted and she's always talking about what's your big plan to keep moving up in the world i just i i don't know i really like her i mean she's definitely evil like everyone in the mirror universe (laughs) she's really loves that button in his quarters that you can just press and anyone will just disappear it's the definitely the vanish mode on the face Um, and uh, she loves that button and she wants to do it to Spock she wants to do it to everyone and so she's she's just ruthless but there's just something about her that is so rare in most of the episodes of the original series I just I just wanted that's why I wanted to talk about her in this episode yeah I mean she calls herself the woman of the season. So it's very clear that she is just trying to climb the ladder and that her quote unquote love for Kirk comes from a love for power. And I think that that is what intrinsically entwines people in the mirror universe. I'm also thinking about all of the mirror episodes we get later on in every other series, but we'll talk about that later. But Mm -hmm. I think that a theme of all of these mirror universe or of the mirror universe is that power is equal to love. And that fear is also equal to love. She says to Kirk at one point, you demand perfection. And 
I've been a captain's woman and I like it. So she clearly loves the power that she holds of even being adjacent to someone powerful because it grants her so much access to being able to just use a vanish button, kill some people, climb the ranks. I think that Marlana really comes in clutch in this episode. Like she kills the security officers that are trying to attack them because she knows that this is not her Kirk. She's like, you are someone unrecognizable. Like you were way too nice. You were letting these people on the planet live. You don't want me to kill Spock. Like, what are you doing? You know, and I think that's very astute of her that she's pretty much right away realizes so does Spock. And I know that we're talking about Marlana in this episode, but I do want to say something that I find really fascinating about the original series as a whole that I often think about, and I know it wasn't really the intention, or at least I think it wasn't, but because I'm a person in the LGBTQ community, I like to think about it this way, where it seems to me that a lot of episodes use women as a smokescreen to talk about how much Spock loves Kirk. <laughs> like, um, and this is yes. something that Shakespeare does virtually every single play he wrote is to get past the censors and to get past the Queen's big censor with a capital C. You had to write an ending where the man and the woman got married and they were happy. Underneath all that, there is so much queer coding. There is so much feminine power that he wrote as sort of an underlying theme where it could get past the censors that way and be like, no, actually, Beatrice and Helena were actually in love. Uh, that's just my theory. But anyway, so I think that this is sort of similar to how TOS is written, even if it's unconscious, or maybe it's just me projecting. But I feel like, especially in this episode, Mirror Mirror, we have this love interest who is super awesome. I love her. I think that Marlana is very powerful. And then we have Spock literally... Like Mirror Spock, he's supposed to be evil because everyone in the Mirrorverse is supposed to be evil, where he still warns Kirk that there's an assassination attempt on his head and that Spock is supposed to kill Kirk if he does not kill the the people on the planet for their dilithium. Marlana even says, you'll never find a man like him. And I love that line because it's absolutely true. I think that Spock's loyalty and devotion to Kirk and his love for Kirk transcends even the evilness of a mirror universe. Like that is pretty amazing that Spock loves mirror Kirk and he's like, you are not him. I love that he's still uses logic and he still is very cool in the face of these very strange circumstances to know that I need to get these people back to their time and he ends up assisting them and I would never have guessed that from a mirror universe character from the beginning they showed no like mirror, mirror universe's characters are they're like corrupt and awful and power hungry but they're also just a mirror of the character themselves you know and so I just think that it's such an interesting concept that Spock is devoted to Kirk in every timeline and every universe. And it's just really cool to see that theme crop up over and over again in these episodes we watched is the fact that I always go back to is like these women are awesome and powerful and very interesting love interests for these characters. But who's there at the end of the day? Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. You know, it always comes back to the three of them or comes back to Kirk and Spock or Spock and McCoy. You know, there's always this dynamic that transcends that of the woman of the week and it's just fascinating to watch particularly in this episode i love 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 that point that you brought up about shakespeare i have never thought about that star trek can't stop referencing shakespeare they literally 
it's out of their control yeah. at this point. <laughs> they same. just they write a script, they wake up in the morning, they don't remember what happened, and it's full of Shakespeare quotes, and they're like, "Oh Jesus!" <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think if that just proves your point even further, just to bring it home for this episode that. Marlena is so smart. And like you said, her and Spock are the only ones to figure it out on the entire ship. Like not even Sulu knows. Sulu's too <laughs> you know? chaotic to realize anything. <laughs> the fact that he wants her. Uh, like... Yeah. yeah. Which he's... Can, sorry. I just want to briefly also talk about Uhura in this episode and how badass she is. She's like, I am not going to deal with this misogynistic bull. Um, she, you know, she knows how to play Sulu to distract him. She does sort of the classic, like, use your feminine wiles to mm -hmm. distract the man. But then she goes and slaps him and she's like, you got to work harder than that. And I just love it because she probably honestly wanted to slap some of the crew members sometimes for their anti-feminist sort of bullshit. And so I love that she's able to do it now <laughs> in this mirror universe and be like, no, this Sulu is a slime bag and I'm going to tell him so. Anyway, I just had to go on a her rant for a minute <laughs> no i'm glad you did i'm glad you did At the end of this episode spock says i must have my captain back so he just wants his gym that's all he wants yeah i wonder if marlena will ever miss the gentle kirk that she met i think about that sometimes yeah, mm. Mm. yeah. i had thought of that but that's a really good point she probably i mean i don't know maybe okay so let's move on to spock i would like to start with the side of paradise so Sounds that we good. can build up to from fake love to forced love to semi-real love <laughs> okay sounds good sounds good <laughs> because the theme that i found a little bit tragic in these episodes we chose for spock's quote-unquote love and affection episodes are that he is pretty much compromised in the episodes we chose because this is the only way that spock can show what human viewers can understand about vulcans is only if he's compromised and showing happiness and kissing people is the way that they sort of portray spock as falling in love with a woman because that's the only way he can fall in love with a woman because he's married to kirk in my opinion like he does not he's not interested in women like I think in general, he's just, that's never been his thing. He's more interested in science and the Enterprise and his crew men. And so and I think that this side of paradise is a very interesting episode because we get to see Spock in a very uncomfortable position for all of us. I think it's uncomfortable to watch even as a viewer and someone who loves Spock dearly to see him sort of being forced by these spores to show emotions of love and desire that I think he does have. I think, I mean, obviously Spock has emotions, but I mean, I think he does have a love for Layla, but he was never able to show it. So Quickly, I'll just tell the plot of this. This is the infamous Spores episode. Everyone talks about this episode where, oh, classic Spores making you fall in love, making you horny, you know, like they always, there's always that joke. And this is where it comes from. We see Spock meeting this woman that he hasn't seen in years that he met previously on Earth named Layla. And she is just obsessed with Spock, like very infatuated, which same. I mean, she's Rihanna. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I definitely hardcore related to Layla in this episode. I was like, yeah, if I were on like a spore high, I would definitely also want to make Spock stay on the planet. And I found it fascinating that the spores really actually adhere to what is your desire in that moment. Kirk's desire is to stay on the Enterprise. 
And so that's what snaps him out of the spores because he eventually gets hit by them on the bridge. It like sneaks up behind him. It's really bizarre. <laughs> like sprays him with spores and he's about to head down to the planet. But his anger, the fact that the spores want to take the Enterprise away from him, knocks him out of it. Spock's true desire, I think, is to be respected and loved by Kirk because when Kirk insults him to get him angry enough for the spores to like let go of their hold on his mind, that is what snaps him out of it. I bet if Layla said like, oh, I never actually loved you or like something very harsh, he'd be like, meh, like I, that's, it's probably I just, fine. I disagree with that. I, mm-hmm. I have a totally different reading of that. We can talk about it more at the end of the episode, but yeah. I totally disagree with that. Oh yeah, I'm super interested to hear it because, and, and McCoy's real desire is to have a mint julep. I don't think he's got much else going on in his head besides mint juleps um, but and Layla of course her desire is to be with Spock I just find the spores interesting because they do bring out these certain uh wishes in people and it makes you more easygoing makes you just like chill essentially and makes them stay on the planet and so I found these moments with Spock and Layla to be really interesting because it is in a way sort of nice to see Spock showing emotions but it's so wrong like it's so not what we are expected to see from Spock that when he shows emotions in this way that are very like outward and he's smiling and laughing and swinging on a tree you know something's wrong you know you know that this is not common Spock. Spock does not show his love or his interest in this way. He shows it through acts of service. He's way more of a guy who will do something for you or show his devotion and loyalty to you through actions instead of through actual emotional expression. So I found that to be really interesting. Yeah, this is an episode that when I first watched it when I was younger and didn't really understand the nuances of everything... I thought it was just another one of those classic TOS, everyone's acting crazy episodes. I mean, <laughs> we see that in The Naked Time. Um, there, there are several other times where people just, because of some influence on a planet, they just act totally opposite to their normal form. Yeah, Return of the Archons too. Like. <laughs> oh God, oh God, yeah. Something that I did not remember from the old days is that it does it is painful for Spock to go through this transition. And the way that Layla talks about Spock behind his back is very predatorially, Mm -hmm. I thought. And she says she knew him six years ago. She told him that she loved him. And now she sees him again. And the director, the the leader of of this colony says, will he be staying with us? And she says, there's no choice. He will be staying with us. And so I know it's the spores talking, but in the beginning of this episode, I thought maybe she was just an evil woman, you know, who's out to get Spock because she's just so in love with him. But it clearly is the spores talking. I just didn't like that. You know, I didn't like that they set this trap for Spock to be forced to go through this emotional change. I thought it was interesting because he radiates a lot more power when he's expressing his emotions and it's a very dangerous power he's very flippant with with whatever he wants to do we just talked about mirror mirror spock says in the mirror universe i'm a very powerful enemy and when kirk is trying desperately to get him back on the ship and back on his side and out of the influence of these spores spock is totally resistant to kirk and resistant to anything that isn't what what he wants to do and I, it's, it's interesting and fun and scary to see Spock 
in this way because we see who he could be, you know, if he didn't have this disciplined logic that he believed in so religiously. Yeah, I I just wasn't sure if I enjoyed how carefree he was in this episode because of all these other factors I just mentioned. I did really love the ending, though. Um, I mean, it's kind of like a hilarious half-baked solution where Kirk just makes everybody emotional and <laughs> they can come back to life. But yeah, so there's just a really, really tender scene at the end of the episode where Spock is explaining, I have responsibilities to the ship, to that man on the bridge, which I thought was a huge clue into everything we've been talking about. Spock's saying, you know, once he's returned back to normal, my responsibilities are to my love, mm-hmm. <laughs> to Kirk. Um And she's crying. She wipes her tear away and she asks him, do you have another name besides Spock? And he says, you couldn't pronounce it. I feel like he would have given a different answer if Scotty had asked him. He would have been like, no, and just left, you know, or something. But he does say like, you couldn't pronounce it in like a kind of a cute way. And I think he's really regretful that he wasn't able to continue to be with her and at the end of the episode he says for the first time in my life I was happy and once again I mean this is just like with uh, how Kirk felt on the planet and paradise syndrome when Spock is truly able to let his emotions run wild he finds that that he enjoyed it you know and so I think it's a hard journey for him to come back to reality once the spores are out of his system the thing I was just agreeing with you about is that I think the reason that Kirk got him out and was able to trigger these really strong emotions. Okay, because sorry, you said trying to remember. I just what you I said think earlier. that Spock wants because it said uh, they said that strong emotions and needs destroy the spores' influence on people, and so I think mm-hmm. that Spock needs Kirk to respect him and uh, like appreciate him. And when Kirk's saying like you're a half breed, you're a freak, like you're a computer, a machine, all of these horrible things. He's like, oh my God, like if Kirk doesn't respect me, then like, you know. I guess I guess I just don't get the need for respect in this episode. I think Kirk has nothing but respect for Spock and I think that Spock feels it. So that's, I guess that's where the point I disagree with you most. I didn't really pick up on the fact and maybe it's mentioned in the episode and I just missed it that the spores create whatever emotion you're feeling in that moment. Is that what you said earlier? Like when you're no, I mean, the the spores, like, I mean, the spores are, like, bring out emotions and everything, but strong emotions and needs are what destroy them. And so I think about, like, what Kirk said, like, his need to get Spock back, you know, and his strong anger towards Spock is what broke Spock's spore influence. But I think it's because of this, the horrible things Kirk was saying to Spock. And if and Spock, I think, believed them or at least thought, like, Jim, why are you saying this? Like, this is horrible. And I think he was probably some stuff that he's already internalized so much from, like, his horrible upbringing I don't know. Like, I, I just feel like there's this interesting connection there that Kirk was the one to snap Spock out of it, you know, and that he, but he had to go to these lengths to do so. It was totally intentional, definitely, that Kirk is the one to do it. I guess I just, yeah, I guess it's mostly, I don't think that Spock believes he's disrespected by Kirk. I think this scene shows that Kirk knows him best of all because he knows everything that Spock hates about himself and Mm. Kirk says it. And we really see how much Spock can tolerate because Kirk calls him all these horrible slurs. You know, he's being extremely racist and xenophobic towards him. And Spock is able to tolerate it 
for a minute. I mean, longer than I could. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> because he's built up these very, very strong walls. And even though he's in the spore state and supposedly more in connection with his emotions, when Kirk starts calling him these things, I think Spock does revert. He start he like hardens up and he's like, I'm not going to let it affect me. It's fine. But Kirk knows exactly which buttons to push. And so I think Spock was just so literally triggered by these things that Kirk is saying that he couldn't hold it in. And I, I do love the line after they're having a brawl and where, oh, it's not every day you get to deck your captain. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Spock says, Captain, striking a fellow officer is a court-martial offense. And Kirk says, well, if we're both in the brig, who's going to build the subtransfuser? <laughs> and, and, and Spock is like, a very logical point, Captain. Yeah, <laughs> and he's like, they're right back in the moment. And Spock, you know, he has his, his moment of closure with uh, Lena, but ultimately he is happiest when he's back to normal with Kirk. Um, yeah, yeah, and definitely. I one line I also found interesting when he was talking to Layla. He says, "I am what I am, Layla. If there are self-made purgatories, then we all have to live in them." And so Spock knows, like he's like, "I chose the Vulcan path. I made these decisions from childhood, and I am going to stick to them. And I'm going to be the person I am." He's like, "I can't show love in the way you want me to." He's like, "Doesn't mean I don't love you. It just means that I am unable." to reciprocate in the way that is important to you. And I think that's such a beautiful way of saying it and something that probably helps Layla to understand him. And I don't think she understands Spock at all because she has this whole monologue where she says, when we knew each other, I would you know, reach out to touch you and you would pull away. Like you couldn't even hug me or you couldn't even wrap your arms around me. And that just tells me that they are not on the same page for like love language wise, for you know, like-, like she does not <laughs> see the nuances of how Spock really shows his affection. And that's why they're not a good pair. And that's why they never got together earlier. Yeah. But well, and I, I mean, like holding hands for Spock is like third base. So like, <laughs> yeah, also she doesn't even understand that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, very different intimacies that like she just doesn't understand the nuances of. Yeah, and so it's it's good that Spock, you know, is kind of laying it down for her. Yeah, I just thought it was just more and more obvious as the episode continued how wrong she was for him. Yeah. But how beautiful it is that he gets a moment to express himself, even if it's a little intimidating yeah. and interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so I think another instance where we see Spock fall for a woman of the week, it's not, again, not very common. Like with McCoy, it's usually Kirk who's <laughs> driving that ship <laughs> with all these women. But in the episode All of Our Yesterdays, it's actually the second to last episode of the season or of the series. And uh, a very good episode, in my opinion. I think that there's a lot of depth to it and a lot of weirdness when Kirk is like being on trial for being a witch. I those scenes, I'm just like, all right, whatever. That's boring. <laughs> yeah, skip, skip, skip. <laughs> Back to menu. But I do love the character of Zarabeth in this episode. I think that she's another one of those one-off women in the original series who really shines and who is really important for the growth of these characters. And this is a fun episode because we get to see Spock and McCoy interact in a way that they often don't get just the two of them time to themselves. It's usually Kirk and Spock or Kirk and McCoy if it's like just 
two people. And so I do enjoy seeing their dynamic because it's always fun to hear their banter and everything. But it's interesting because in this episode, they are sent back, they're on um, Scarpadian, and they're sent through this like doorway into a different time and a different location. And then there's like Arctic wilderness and it's freezing because it's thousands of years ago. Spock is reverting back to the time before Serac's teachings where Vulcans were more of a quote unquote savage race and were tearing each other apart from violence and emotion and desire and all of that. And so we get to see again, Spock in a semi-compromised state falling in love with someone. It takes him to be compromised to actually show his affection. And we see this again in all of our yesterdays. Zarabeth, I find to be very sympathetic in this episode. She has been abandoned on this literally frozen wasteland with nothing but a big coat and a cave for company. And she sees a hot Vulcan come in. Of course, she would want him to stay. I would want Spock to stay. I think anyone McCoy even vouches for her at the end of the episode or middle of the episode. He says something around the lines of she's extremely lonely. She will tell you anything to make you stay. She will kill anyone to make sure you remain. If you're condemned to a life of solitude on a frozen planet, you can barely go outside and you could die in minutes if you do. I completely understand her perspective in this episode. Yes. I also love that I don't need Memory Alpha to talk about Vulcans with you, Rihanna, because I can just sit back and let the Vulcan knowledge fall into my ears. (laughs) (laughs) I've got you covered. Yeah. Like... (laughs) I'm like, all right, yeah, you you talk about Sarah. Go off then. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I'm honored. <laughs> yeah, I thought box kind of arc in this episode is most easily marked because in the beginning when they both go through to back to the ice age McCoy has fallen over he's frostbitten they've been in the cold for a long time and Spock says we go together or not at all then you know as the episode progresses and Spock is losing more and more of his logic because he's reverting to the savage race that he self-describes um, the Vulcans as being he does not care about McCoy <laughs> no <laughs> uh, and more and more this episode goes on and even at the very end when it's crunch time to go back home Spock wants to stay and leave McCoy wow what a crazy 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 journey for Spock I just don't know if Spock is really feeling emotions for her or if it's only because of this passion. If he had met her in modern days, he would have maybe that spark, but he would interact with her in a very, you know, like logical manner because of his deteriorating condition, but not, I guess, not deteriorating, uh, time reverting. reverting. (laughs) I think passions get stronger and stronger and he gets more and more violent. I mean, there's one point where he like holds McCoy up to the wall and is almost strangling him because McCoy is pointing out exactly what you said earlier, that Zarabeth is probably lying to keep us here. Well, and the other reason he nearly strangles McCoy is because McCoy calls him a green-blooded hobgoblin and Spock says, I don't care for that. I don't think I've ever cared for that. And that is like is sort of this anger coming through and that is what switch flips the switch for McCoy to realize oh Spock is going through it like he is not himself right now I think that real quick what I want to say is that that's a testament to their relationship that he knows Spock so well to be like that he is not in his normal state of mind he would not act this way even if he were mad that I called him a hobgoblin like I call him a hobgoblin every other day and he doesn't lash out at me like this it's very important for them to understand each other in that way especially Spock because he's not one to wear his emotions on his sleeve or to be very clear about how he's feeling so they have 
have to use these cues from Spock to understand him. And they do for the most part. And so when he's acting abnormally, I think it's really cool that everyone in the vicinity who knows Spock, mainly Kirk and McCoy, right away are like, oh, something's wrong. We're going to help you out. Like we know that you're not in your right state of mind. I think honestly, he was finally able to tell McCoy, I do not like being called racist terms yeah, you know understandably um, like as endearing as it is on the show and we laugh at it i think that's this is exactly what spock grew up with on vulcan so how would he ever like that totally you know um and so i think he's finally releasing it yeah he shouldn't have strangled him um <laughs> it's you know it's hard to not strangle racists but um, <laughs> you gotta withhold sometimes yeah. you have to withhold and luckily spock does so I'm not saying McCoy is racist, but you know, I mean, just well, it's early early Star Star Trek, Trek. yeah, early Star Trek, yeah, and late TOS, especially because we're watching these episodes where Spock is emotionally compromised again and again and again. I think it's Spock's journey, and it always will be that he has to constantly choose between his human and Vulcan side. And this is a very strange circumstance where his Vulcan side is betraying him, and normally it's his human side, and so I think. Because he's so devoted to the practice of being Vulcan, and that's his life goal is to be as Vulcan as possible, that when he reverts to this natural state, he doesn't care. And he embraces it. And he, I think he's like, wow, I can finally be who I am. Well, and something that I found really powerful about the end of this episode is the fact that Zarabeth does let him go. I think that McCoy was wrong about her. I think that she wouldn't kill every officer on the Enterprise to have McCoy stay. She would lie to him, certainly. She did lie to him and say that they couldn't go back through the portal, but she wouldn't go that far. And I think that that shows her strength and also that's really hard she's condemning herself to a life of loneliness after a blissful what day of being around people after years of being alone and so i think that it's really important that they have this moment of goodbye and it's really cute and sad to see spock being like how much time do we have he's like i want to spend every single last second with her up to the moment where we have to depart and it turns out you know that mccoy and spock have to go through the portal together so it's not like mccoy can go through first and spock can say a final goodbye so he has to mccoy stands there and watches them have this really heartfelt goodbye and then spock just like walks away and zarabeth lets him go and i don't know i just found her strength to be really admirable in this moment because i do not think i would be that strong i'd be like weeping and sobbing and be like please don't go you know and she's just like you have to go so it's it's really cool i think the reason why spock identifies with her so much is because she's been alone all her life and they discuss this it's similar to what mccoy says in for the world is hollow and i have touched the sky he says he's a lonely man zarabeth says i know what it is like to be alone truly alone and spock says so do i we talked about spock so much in our family series and we've talked about spock so much in this episode yeah Because he's so awesome and there's just so much to talk about, I think that real connection that he found with her is something so special. And he knows once he goes back through the portal, he's not even going to be the same person that he was. McCoy was totally wrong about Zarabeth. Zarabeth is awesome. I should probably name my next car after her. Yeah. Um, (laughs) She's great. Like, um, I love her. But I was kind of wondering, and they did not say anything about this. I was wondering if McCoy was reverting to like the savage human race five thousand years ago because he's very angry in this episode i think angrier than it's called for zarabeth is not reverting but she's not human and so we don't really right i don't think she's human i'm not sure 
I don't know if it's a human colony or not. Maybe she is. Mm -hmm. But she's been in this time for a while. And so we don't know what she was like before when she was living on Scarpadia. So I was kind of wondering if McCoy was also reverting to like caveman times where you got to fight everybody and <laughs> we're, I mean, start the fire. Yeah. It makes some sense because caveman times, I guess I'll just call it that. <laughs> we're, we're definitely scientists. Uh-huh, yeah, I definitely know what those errors are called. Um, but during that time, it was focused so much on loyalty and on your um, tribe or group, you know? And so I think that McCoy was so focused on getting Jim back because that was the sort of loyalty you have. I mean, you like trust your, the people in your tribe to go and like make sure your baby doesn't die while you're, while the men are out hunting or the the women gather together to make sure that everyone stays alive and the men hunt together. And so I think that McCoy's always pretty loyal, but he was like desperate to get back to Kirk and to get them all together and back on the enterprise again. And so I think it was sort of this crew mentality of like, we need our collective sort of not to use a Borg term. Maybe. Yeah. That's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought of, but he was very desperate in this to get back to Jim and Kirk too. Of course he was in a different time period where witches were being on trial. He was also of course desperate to find Spock and McCoy so much so that he has this whole brawl with this guy and Scarpadian and like it's just hilarious and random but Scotty's like freaking out he's like it's now or never captain <laughs> you know he's like losing his mind and Kirk's like no wait and like poor yeah poor Scotty he needs to take some St. John's work because like he's probably stressed all the time about these <laughs> time crunches I would love to see a Lower Decks episode of the original series where it's just Scotty screaming bloody murder <laughs> The whole episode, um, yeah. The whole episode, <laughs> yeah. He's like minutes. the sun's about to explode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think someone should make a compilation of all the times that he just loses it because Kirk is asking him to do the literal impossible. <laughs> yeah, for real. Ashlyn, you spoke a bit about how Spock was uh, had in the past been reverting to his human side. In all of our yesterdays, he is reverting to his Vulcan side. The, another time where he also a slave to his Vulcan biology is, and of course the famous episode Amok Time where he has to return to Vulcan to take a mate to Pring. This episode does not have a lot of love and affection when it comes to Pring. She's not in love with Spock and Spock is not in love with her. They do not have a lot of loss of love there. But we chose this episode because of course, I mean, there is an element of sexual attraction that goes on through biology. I mean, Kirk belittles it a little bit by saying, oh, I mean, the birds and bees do it. Birds like, and bees are not Vulcans. <laughs> thank you, exactly. A fantastic episode iconic moment and I think it is so iconic because of the final scenes where Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are down on Vulcan and Kirk is forced to fight Spock to the death and of course McCoy pulls a fast one and is and makes sure that Kirk doesn't actually die. This episode is very telling about the three of them and their relationship and how they show affection for one another. First of all, Spock is not supposed to bring non-Vulcans to the Konat Kalifi ceremony. Well, it's his right. It's his right, but he's not supposed to. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. To Tapau is very disgruntled by the fact that he brought not one, but two humans down to Vulcan for the Kalifi. I think that it is a lovely sentiment because Spock is like, these are my friends. I'm not going to just 
like go down here by myself. He requested their presence with him on the planet as I think a, a, a moment of emotional support because he does not want to marry to Pring. He is not interested in her. This was a, an arranged marriage from their parents. And arranged marriage is very common in a lot of cultures. It sort of goes either way sometimes. I think that some arranged marriages actually turn out really great because it takes pressure off the people to find someone. It's just sort of like, oh, I'm already betrothed to this person. I can grow to love them. And a lot of times it does work really well that way. But a lot of times it doesn't. And it can feel very constricting and can feel marriage is not actually about love. A lot of times in arranged marriages, it's not about love. Love is not the focus of marriage. It's either two cultures marrying each other to like- Or for profit. Yeah, for profit, for peace, for diplomacy. Um, There's so many reasons why marriages occur. And especially in Vulcan culture, I think love is definitely not the forefront of why people get married. But it is for Tepring and it is- like the reason she is not marrying Spock is because she loves Stone and Stone is this like random Vulcan that she falls in love with and also she does not want to be adjacent to someone so famous in Vulcan society. As much as I dislike Tepring because she's pretty awful to Spock and she like makes him fight Kirk to the death and it's awful because it puts Spock in this horrible position where he's literally unable to consent to this fight because he's going through um, the pond far and the blood fever is in his brain and he can't think clearly so he's definitely not in a place to consent to this fight and Kirk does not know what he's consenting to so it's a very dicey situation. I don't condone her methods but I understand why she wouldn't want to marry someone she doesn't love. I mean it's it's totally understandable that if you fall in love with someone else and you have an arranged marriage you're going to try to get out of it. Spock has not shown any interest in keeping up this marriage. We didn't even know that he was married until this very moment. Mm -hmm. I keep thinking about, since we just watched it for our family series, the uh, Enterprise episode where T'Pol brings Trip back to Vulcan because it's a similar situation, you know, where she loves trip but she's betrothed to someone else mm -hmm. but i mean at this point spock really loves starfleet and his career and he doesn't want to be on vulcan all the time with the wife and family that's not his place period so, so there's yeah. one and then I'm, I'm also thinking about chapel at the beginning of this episode because she's someone who has had a crush on spock for a long time and she does very small gestures to show it she knows him and she doesn't want to be too imposing i mean obviously they work together spock is not interested in her this all comes to a Head when Spock throws the Vulcan Plumique soup against the wall when Chapel brings the soup to him. I love the scene that happens maybe about 10 minutes later when Spock apologizes to Chapel because Spock is still going through Ponfar. He's still having this raging fever, but he's able to calm himself down enough to apologize to Chapel and to say, we have to talk about this because I know we both feel something. I was actually wondering, do you think that in that moment, if Chapel was willing, Spock could have taken Chapel as a mate. I feel like there's some pawn far details we don't know enough about, but because of the context of different series, if you're Vulcan going through Ponfar, can you just mate with anyone and it'll be done? You don't really have to get married? Well, okay, so this is very complicated because yes, technically, I'm fairly certain you can mate with anyone, but the customs and traditions stop that from happening. And since Vulcans are so they, structured, yeah, structured and, they yeah. adhere so much to tradition, I mean, they still implement a fight to the death that happened like hundreds of years ago. I think that 
they're so entrenched in tradition that it wouldn't really allow Vulcans. Vulcans wouldn't even consider taking a mate that wasn't their uh, betrothed. But I think, yes, in a pinch, you could probably just bang someone on the ship and your fever would go away. There has to be an element of affection there is my guess. I This is not like... I'm not exactly memory alpha in this circumstance. Yeah, I really liked this scene with Chapel. The only thing is I'm like, Spock, you've got to let her off the hook. You know, she has been pining for you for so long. And he's like, actually, can you please make me some of that soup? Like, it's a very nice scene, but like you need to tell her this isn't going to happen because she's going to keep holding on to this interest, this attraction to him. And to see it in her face when he's up on the bridge and Chapel comes in to bring McCoy a, like, like medical kit or whatever and he is talking with Tupring on the screen and she's like he who is my husband parted me from me and never parted you know that whole scene chapel looks devastated she's like oh my god i didn't know that spock had a wife <laughs> at home you know because earth customs are so different from vulcan customs that yes technically spock is not married yet but he is betrothed and so it's just it's hard to watch Chapel go through this pain of rejection and I think that Spock could have been a little more just blunt with her but he was also going through the fever so I have some empathy for that like it's a tough time for Spock right now. I think it's also interesting that the Konat Kalifi the ceremony is called marriage or challenge. That's just something I find very interesting in Vulcan culture about love and marriage is the fact that it, you either marry someone or you challenge someone. Like that's a very differentiating system here. Something that doesn't seem like a Vulcan custom, but it has been happening for so many years that they just continue this tradition. Normally Vulcans would not fight to the death to figure something out. That's way more Klingon style than Vulcans. Like this is something that it's not a normal custom for the rest of Vulcan. I mean, they don't do this for their entry ceremonies into the science academy or other for the culinar. I just think that's really interesting. But also the fact that Spock is begging, he is pleading with T'Pau for Kirk not to be his challenger because he knows he has to kill Kirk and he knows that because he's in this fever he will not stop and he will not stop himself from killing Kirk and he says to Pow I plead with thee and she's like you must decide are the Vulcan or are the human you know are you gonna adhere to our traditions or are you gonna save this one human and Spock's like well I'm in a fever I can't really make a choice and it's just really hard to watch you're not supposed to be able to even speak when you're in like the height of your blood fever and he is pleading with her it's so hard to watch and it's really solidifies in my brain how much he loves Kirk and how devoted he is to him that he's like I would rather just be killed by this blood fever than have to kill my best friend. T'Pau is really rude to him in that scene too because she said it is known that your blood is weak Spock so are you Vulcan or are you human so to me this just speaks to Spock I mean Spock is famous we we talked about it earlier um but he is famously half human too and so people can just openly be racist to him on vulcan and it's fine he's one of the only ones at this point poor spock I, this is why he's not gone home in so long and he doesn't even see his parents that's a different situation yeah. but anyway i thought also the scene back up on the ship where spock is telling kirk about ponfar and explaining the situation obviously we need this scene so the audience knows what's going on with spock and why he's throwing soup i thought it was really sweet that Kirk heard the explanation and he said, I understand. And he just, he diverted the ship right to Vulcan. He didn't ask any questions. He just knew my friend will die if we don't help him. And 
so I'll do anything to do it. And he can he can reroute on his way to this diplomatic mission. Well, but um, he's risking his career for this because the Admiral is telling him, you have to get to this planet right now. Kirk is like, uh-uh, my first officer is going to die if I don't. So he will risk his entire career for Spock. And we see this, you know, time and time again. I also found that interesting. One thing I do want to say too about the scene where Kirk and Spock are talking about the Pond Far is the fact that in the background I had never heard before, but the theme music is just a slow version of the classic Amok Time music that they play when Kirk and Spock are fighting. And so I find that really interesting that it's under it's showing this underlying tension between the two of them to sort of foreshadow what's to come. And I don't know, I'm just like Alexander Courage. Alexander Courage is really going after it with music as a foreshadowing technique. That is a Definitely. great scene. And I love that he goes to Kirk to like he will talk to with Kirk about this. And Kirk knows he's like, oh I'll go talk to Spock. He'll open up to me. And just from a representation standpoint, I just am reminded that if there were other Vulcans in Starfleet at this time, Starfleet would know about Ponfar and they would easily grant him vacation, you know, to go back to Vulcan. Because once there are more Vulcans serving in the fleet, this is a commonplace practice. Like, oh, sure, we got to send Tuvok home for (laughs) Ponfar, send him to the holodeck. Um, uh, Just a little side note that representation matters because then everyone is included and gets um, what they need to survive. Preach it. But anyway, this episode's so iconic. I think we've really talked about it a lot, but the last scene that I have to talk about is at the end when Spock thinks that he has killed Kirk. Blood fever is gone because he killed his best friend and he goes up to McCoy. He says, I resign. I killed my captain. He's totally devastated. He's like, I've lost my place in Starfleet. I'm a murderer. Um, I've lost my best friend. I've lost everything I've ever worked for. And then Kirk just comes running back in and Spock gives a genuine smile. Not under the influence of anything. This is just because he loves Kirk. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean you could argue that blood fever is still leaving him no, but it's gone. i don't think yeah. so i think it's just genuine love this episode is great because it really tests the dynamic between kirk spock and mccoy especially when kirk is just thrown into this situation where he has no idea what to do lucky for spock kirk is the best one at rolling with the punches and so he's the perfect one that stone could have pointed at if he'd pointed at mccoy whoa man it would have been a different episode <laughs> I'd be like, I gotta inject myself with like, <laughs> neurotoxin. And then Spock would have been like, oh, it's fine. I'll kill McCoy. <laughs> yeah, Kirk is truly the best for this crazy circumstance. He's already fighting everyone all the time, so one question I want to ask, because Spock has this beautiful line when he's talking to Stone after Tapring has told him that she doesn't want to marry him divorcing him essentially and he says you may find that after a time having is not so pleasing a thing as wanting and i'm wondering how do you think spock learned that lesson what is something you think that he wanted desperately and then when he had it it was not so pleasing what a great question i don't know I don't know. Having is not such a pleasing thing as wanting. Do you have an answer to your own question? Okay, please give it because I'm drawing a blank here. I think it's his Vulcan heritage. I think that he has wanted to be full Vulcan for so long. This is on the heels of him just thinking he killed Kirk and T'Pring is like, live long and prosper, Spock. And he's like, I will do neither. (laughs) I think he is realizing my Vulcan heritage just killed my best friend, the love of my life. I had wanted to be Vulcan my whole life and now this is the result of it and so i think it's him realizing wow i worked so hard to be vulcan and now that i have it it's kind of sucky i totally agree with you i think also because depending on what you've watched most recently the rules kind of change my understanding of spock's timeline and we're 
going to talk forever about this, but my my understanding of it is that he has not gone through Ponfar before, mm-hmm. and they were only married earlier because he was just betrothed, but he didn't have the fever. Of course, in The Search for Spock, he does go through Ponfar when he's on Genesis, and that's awkward because like, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> awkward. So I don't think he's gone through it before, and Spock right, is, yeah. I think, like 30... Well, no, that's Leonard Nimoy's 34, 35. I don't know how old Spock is at this point, but it's supposed to be every seven years is Ponfar. And so he is frustrated when he's going through this. And he even says it at the beginning of the episode, my Vulcan heritage has finally caught up with me. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think you're totally right, Rihanna. And that's a great observation. Excellent work. Thank you. Well, since we've talked so much about our main cast individually, I thought maybe we could turn and talk a little bit about the menagerie. Yes. Because we covered the cage in our pilot episode, our first ever episode of the Jurassic Sisters podcast. Uh, definitely take a second or two hours to go listen to that. <laughs> um, I just want to talk about the menagerie, especially because Pike is such a prominent character now in Discovery. We're going to have more Pike to come. Woo. I think he's someone who is always been a part always had a huge place in star trek and now has even a more growing role the menagerie is a great episode it's you know maybe one of the best ones but it's also just the crew of the enterprise watching the cage (laughs) and so for that it also weakens it a little bit you know if you haven't seen the original pilot the cage the menagerie is a fascinating and amazing episode if you have seen it it's like, all right, cool. Well, I already saw this, again. you know, yeah. eight episodes ago. Yeah. yeah. We chose this for love and affection, obviously because of the romantic relationship between Pike and Vina, but also because of Spock's loyalty and love for Captain Pike, which is evident throughout this episode. You can tell that this is early in season one because Spock and McCoy are shocked that Spock isn't following orders and going rogue. But if you know Spock like we do and like every Star Trek fan does, you know that he is always going to do something crazy for the people that he loves. Cough, cough. Always. Michael. <clears throat> yeah, I was getting, yeah, I was really thinking about Michael during this entire episode. Mm-hmm. Spock will sacrifice anything to save someone. I mean, this is a very small version of what he does later in The Wrath of Khan. Yeah. And McCoy even says to Kirk, I could run off half cocked for anything and so could you, but not Spock. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, you guys don't know Spock well enough yet. (laughs) (laughs) Just the timeline is that Spock served with Pike for 11 years. And he even says the exact time. He's like, I served 11 years, 10 days. Four months and five days, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he's got that timer still clicking, you know, he remembers. And the events of the cage took place 13 years ago. And so Spock is removed from Pike. And I can only imagine how he felt when he heard that Pike was an invalid at this time and he can't even he can only move his head it seems like he can only beep yes or no yeah um, there's also a very horrific and hilarious hallmark ornament of pike in his chair yeah which like why would you want that on your tree well, but also like I, I want it on my uh, tree we, yeah. we also own this ornament and there are lines from it that i knew just because of the ornament i was like wow <laughs> this is a weird place to be in but here we are (laughs) anyway yeah this episode really shows i think for the first time just how loyal spock is what are your thoughts about the menagerie my first thought is that it would be great to have spock in your corner because he is a ride or die and i love that about him pike is also a ride or die i mean he 
cares so much about the people around him that the reason he was injured was because he was saving a cadet vessel and he saved a bunch of young cadets who were still alive sacrificing his body and his autonomy he was prepared to sacrifice his life for these cadets that he probably didn't know very well so we see this as if your captain shows that kind of loyalty then you're going to show that kind of loyalty to them and you're going to appreciate them more because you see the sacrifices they make for their crew and we see in our lovely little screening of the cage in the menagerie we see (laughs) that pike sacrifices himself for number one and the other female crew member who are brought down there so he can choose another mate which is so sexist but anyway he is like no i'll stay down here with vina and you guys can be mac up to the ship that's the uh decision he makes of course everything turns out okay and he gets to head out unscathed (laughs) essentially (laughs) but that kind of devotion to your crew is the same kind of devotion we see in Kirk and something that Spock deeply admires about his captains. And I did find it really interesting to see Kirk's reactions to Spock and his mutiny, essentially, in this episode, because he- Mutiny! mutiny! This is mutiny, mister. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Like, wow, mutineers really run the family. Because like, I wondered if some part of Kirk is a little jealous or a little uh, bitter that Spock is sacrificing so much for his old captain. He doesn't really, I mean, he understands the bond that the two of them have. So maybe he's like, oh yeah, like totally. If I had another first officer before Spock that I served with for 11 years, I would be feeling the same things. And so maybe he understands that, but you can see Kirk's just angry. He's like, why are you doing this? Like, what is so important about Talos 4 that you need to get back there, even though it would be a literal death penalty? Like only death penalty left in the Federation is going to Talos 4. Bach is willing to risk it. Pike is protesting the whole time as much as Pike can. He's saying no, no, no. He's like, listen, Spock, don't do this. And I can, yeah, I can hear Jeffrey Hunter, you know, <laughs> in my mind's eye, I can hear him being like, Spock, don't do this. Like you were sacrificing your entire career and your life for me. Please don't do this. No no, I do not consent. Don't do this. And Spock is like, I'm going to do this for you. Like, I want you to live out the rest of your life as happy as you can be. And this is the only solution. Truly. I mean, I, there's no other way that Pike could live a life where he's not live a different life that he could be happy with Vina. And the only way is through the Telosians. And so I don't know, I just I do find the dynamics between Kirk and Spock in this episode really interesting. And of course, to see Spock and Pike together, again, in this wholly different circumstance is really fascinating. And it's also hard to watch Pike watch the videos of the episode The Cage. He's probably thinking back to the time when he was able-bodied and it's it's just probably really tough for him to go through that trauma again. But I think he knows at one point, well, Spock's willing to do this for me. I'm going to stand up for him as much as possible and at least show everyone why he's doing this and make sure that Spock gets off scot-free as well. I'm trying not to think about if he regrets taking the time crystal. I'm trying to just not think about that. And this is not our discovery series. It's impeding my ability to think about the menagerie any other way after having seen discovery. So anyway, spoilers, major spoilers (laughs) for discovery there. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I love what you said about Kirk maybe being jealous. I don't know if it's, yeah, actually I do. It is jealousy. But I also think it's the fact that Spock is doing something that's, 
in Kirk's eyes so out of character that he's surprised he doesn't know him better. Mm. And he's surprised that Spock has the secret history that he's told no one about. The real surprise is that Spock has a huge secret history that no one knows about because he's a very private person. Mm-hmm. Spock's whole life, we get these little reveals about crazy things that he's been through. Anyway, we obviously we talked a lot about the cage in our pilot episode. But just because this is a love infection series, I'm wondering, Rihanna, when Vina is going through all of these different characters in order to please Pike and to get him to stay with her, there's one moment, it's the very, very famous moment where she's an Orion slave girl and she's dancing and the men next to Pike are saying she's... uh, She's like a terrifying beast that no one can resist, you know, like no man can resist her, which I'm just like so annoyed. Very racist to the Orions because they're literal slaves. They're not, they didn't ask for this anyway. (laughs) And sexist towards women. I'm wondering because Pike really does seem attracted to Vina. And so I'm wondering if, do you think he's only helping Vina and wants to save her from this place because she's attractive and because she does these dances for him and because she's literally like throwing herself at him or do you think he's just helping her because she's someone in danger like those cadets he just lost his body for Mm -hmm. to see someone in danger and he's trying to help her I think it's a combo. I think that she happens to be a very beautiful woman. He also has a saving people thing. You know, he has sort of a complex, as most Starfleet captains do, where they will risk life and limb for people who are in trouble. And Pike falls directly into that mold. He's not as self-sacrificing. Well, actually, that's a lie. He is literally as self-sacrificing as Kirk. (laughs) But he does it in a a different way than Kirk would. I think that he still remained very respectful to her and her space, even when she was trying to be this tantalizing Orion slave girl um, that was his, like, naughtiest, darkest fantasies he still refused to sleep with her or to even kiss her. He is flat out refusing. He's focused on his mission. But I think that he did start to fall for her. He was also having a Tahiti syndrome moment where he wanted to live a different life. And she provided that for him for those moments. And I think that like we see this when in Discovery where like he sees her again for the projection and is like super enamored um so there's definitely love there i think it's just he was so focused on being a prisoner you know that it kind of kind of belittles your feelings yeah when you're a literal like in this human cage it can be both someone can be very attractive and you want to save them for that reason and because you genuinely want to help people and like assist them when they're in trouble yeah what do you think yeah i i totally agree with you i think pike is just one of those unique characters that is just all good i mean aside from like his sexist comments in the cage which i just ignore because it's the 60s i'm wondering if because we watched some of these episodes for the trio what if we choose our top favorite trio moments each and briefly talk about them and this include movies or whatever you want i mean i have to first talk about this simple feeling (laughs) if you guys don't know just by that quote there's a scene in star trek the motion picture which is probably the gayest scene i've ever missed in star trek which is saying something (laughs) so there is this moment in the motion picture where spock has just come back from his exploratory journey to figure out what the heck v'ger is and he's in sick bay kirk and mccoy are hanging around by his bed asking him what did you see what's v'ger all about asking these 
these questions, Spock is just in awe with all that V'ger knows and has seen and like with this community of machines that it has created on the little V'ger world. I don't still really understand motion picture because it's a mess, but this scene is really amazing because Spock is the first of all he's the one to initiate he grabs Kirk's hand and he talks about this simple feeling and the look of love in both of their eyes is just floors me I'm like this is beautiful what a gorgeous moment to add in and it reminds me so much of various women of the week in the original series they would hold hands in the exact same way that Kirk and Spock are doing now so many memes on Twitter of like how Kirk always grabs women by the shoulders to like kiss them and he does the same stuff for Spock in the movies not in front of the Klingons dig it in there Mm -hmm. Mr. Spock like there's so many wonderful hilarious moments where you can see it's very in my eyes, very queer coded, but this simple feeling, that line is really Spock's way of saying, this is the love that I feel for you. It's simple because it's easy and because we've been friends forever and we just know each other like no other. And I think it's also special that McCoy's there, even though he's not a part of the hand-holding session, he's still there to witness this. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I totally know. Like you guys are married. Like we're all sort of married. It's fine. I love that scene and probably the shining moment of what is mostly a very bad movie. <laughs> I totally agree. I love that simple feeling. Ashlyn, <laughs> <laughs> what's a trio moment for you? Well, I mean, it's such a weird moment because of the movie that it's in, but the camping scene in Final Frontier, you can't go wrong. Just watch the first 10 minutes of that movie and then watch the last five. And it's just, I mean, where's its Oscar, you know? Truly. Um, I love the scenes and there's a lot of jokes about this in lower decks but i'm such a sucker for scenes where our crew is not on duty and they're just having fun together mm-hmm. and seeing kirk spock and mccoy just being their natural selves kirk is climbing el cap spock just flying around on his boots mccoy's <laughs> drinking and he's being stressed and then they sing row 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 your bow i mean talk about their lives just think it's so beautiful their relationship and especially to have that moment after 20 years of them being together both as a cast and as a group of characters i think it's really a shining moment I just love that camping scene in the beginning and end of Final Frontier. Those are so good. Yeah, and I think you're right about them with it being the cast too because they have so much chemistry as actors too because they've been working together for so many years. I mean, it's hard not to when you've been on a show and then randomly do animated series work together and like then you're in all these movies together. I just think it's really special that like you can really see the chemistry of all of them, especially in the movies. Like the movies just get... Like they get closer and closer. Another scene I do want to mention, it's more of a trifecta of scenes, but something that always stands out to me in the original series is we get to see when people are at their most vulnerable, like in the episode The Empath, where McCoy has just been tortured and um, Kirk and Spock are like holding him and Spock has his hand on McCoy's face and he's just like stroking him. McCoy's like, you have a great bedside manner, Spock. Who would have thought? Those moments where someone's really in trouble. There's also an episode in Mirai, I think it is, where McCoy is also injured and Spock is holding him. There's these really lovely moments when you really see someone either on death's door or hurting deeply. Spock and all of them are way more willing to show their true love and loyalty to one another in those moments. And so I think those are always really special TOS moments because it reminds me how close they all are and how special their bond is. Yeah, I totally agree. I love that scene. Yeah. I love all those scenes. <laughs> I just have to say it because 
it has to be said, uh, the ending of Wrath of Khan mm. is maybe the most powerful trio scene and most powerful demonstration of love and affection, maybe in all of Star Trek. I don't know. Fight me. Um, but for Spock to go through his whole life and uh, fighting with his humanity forever, always, and then choosing again and again to support his friends and to save everyone and to not give in to all of the hatred that is put towards him and instead just be his amazing Spock and fix the ship and save everybody. I think some of the best acting is also done in that scene. Shatner really shines in Wrath of Khan. Man, wouldn't we do our movie series? Oh, I just can't, can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. Yeah, Shatner shines in that scene. Nimoy, of course, is always shining. Always. He's never is never not shining. Um, <laughs> absolutely. And then also McCoy has a role to play in that as well. And he, before Kirk even gets there, him and Scotty are both trying to save Spock but Scotty stops McCoy from entering stops Kirk from entering it's just so powerful and that's all you need to know to understand the dynamics between these people is that they've served together forever and they would all die for each other well and the fact that Spock's first reaction when he had just fixed the ship is he asked Kirk ship out of danger ship out of danger and that's the first thing he thinks of he does not think like oh man someone get me to sick bay <laughs> you know he's like is everyone safe did I do it that is so essential for their characters you know and that of course is the needs of the many thing it's the importance of the self-sacrifice and damn do those three do it well they sacrifice for each other all the time i thought we could end on this quote from the episode requiem for methuselah <laughs> oh <laughs> no I, I just a tough one to say methuselah yeah, or something sure. that one <laughs> Yeah. There's this really beautiful quote that I just think about a lot and I thought I would read it. So Please. Um, this is McCoy talking to Spock and he's referring to Kirk. He says, you see, I feel sorry for you than I do for him because you'll never know the things that love can drive a man to. The ecstasies, the miseries, the broken rules, the desperate chances, the glorious failures and the glorious victories. All of these things you'll never know simply because the word love isn't written into your book. <laughs> and I will argue that love is written into all of their books and that Spock has felt all of those things. McCoy has felt all of those things. Kirk has felt all of those things. Yeah. Oh, man. That's that's one of my favorite quotes. I love that moment. Thank you for sharing that, Rihanna. That's just a reminder that these episodes are not at all all of the love and affection in Star Trek. These are the ones we just wanted to highlight. And we want to thank you so much for listening to this episode. We are very excited. I mean super super excited to continue on with this series this is a still fairly new podcast but i love that we get to change up the structure every once in a while and keep it fresh so thank you for sticking with us i hope that you have felt some love and affection during this episode and i hope you have a very wonderful valentine's day no matter who you're with i hope in this pandemic you can find someone to connect to today and this week and this month and maybe this year <laughs> thank you so much for listening to the dura sisters podcast thank you Happy Valentine's Day. Thank you for listening to the Dura Sisters podcast. Please tune in next week for the second episode of our Love and Affection series, where Ashlyn and Rihanna will discuss love and affection in Star Trek The Next Generation. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and check to see our suggested watch list for our upcoming episodes. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a review on whatever platform you listen. If you would like to become a patron 
Any amount per month will get you exclusive access to our reviews of the Lower Decks, Star Trek trivia, and our future reviews of the animated series. You can find these extra episodes at patreon.com slash the Dura Sisters podcast. If you would like to contact us for any reason, please do so at the Dura Sisters podcast at gmail.com. Our intro, Klingon Battle, was written by Jerry Goldsmith, and our outro, Worst Revenge, is by Arillo Voltaire. Spock asked Chekhov, what is the formula for pie? And Chekhov says, uh, apple or blueberry? 